Hello, everyone, and welcome to our show, The Parent-Physician Partnership for Healing Our Children. On each episode, we have discussed a specific topic related to overall biomedical intervention for neuroimmune disorders. We have also updated our listeners on my son Jake's recovery from autistic symptoms under the care of Dr. Kendall Stewart, and I look forward to sharing more progress with you today. Our topic then today is heavy metal toxicity and is a very important topic for our children's diagnosis and recovery. So with that, I'd like to reintroduce my co-host, Dr. Kendall Stewart. Hello, Dr. Stewart. Hi, Lisa. How are you today? Very well. Thank you. Good. So it's great to be here again. Uh Um, I'm happy to have this conversation with you because it's a reminder for me on how far we've come with recovering Jake. And... um, I'll tell our listeners the story about the heavy metals. Um, (laughs) There is a story here. I was literally standing on the Capitol Hill lawn in June 2008 when your nurse called to give me the lab results from Jake's first heavy metal or urine toxicology screen. And um, I didn't have any paper, so I wrote the results on my hand in ink. And she kept giving me more metals, and I kept writing and finally she rattled off the seventh medal and I looked at my hand and it just in disbelief I couldn't believe that he had seven medals that he was moderate to highly toxic for and um, during I was at a rally um, an autism rally of all places and um, so over the course of the next few days I talked to some of the other parents and found out that almost all of them had a story involving medals So I had parents that said they were in various stages with diagnosis. Um, Some were doing chelation, some had already tested for metals. And so um, I came home from that trip really motivated to get to the bottom of the metal treatment. And I will say initially I was kind of terrified by what I heard. And I still to this day think metals are a scary thing, but um, the goal of this show is to hopefully make it easy for parents to understand that they are treatable. Sure. And so with that, um, I'd like for you to, this is a very open-ended question, and you can take it where you want. <laughs> you always do that. To yes, me. but if you can <laughs> explain to us why our kids have heavy metal toxicity. Okay. Well, first of all, um, it is a very open-ended question, and it's uh, really a question that's uh, very controversial in a lot of ways, especially with mainstream doctors. Um, I think... Uh, everybody would understand that there are certain metals which we call heavy metals which are indeed minerals that are just not supposed to be in the body um, that are whenever they get in too high concentrations in the body do things that are not supposed to uh, happen in the body and so from a from a toxicity standpoint we have to understand that there's acute toxicity and there's chronic toxicity now What I try to instill to each parent when they're dealing with heavy metals is to understand that these are just minerals that don't belong in the biologic system we're dealing with, okay? Now, typically, the way that those things are divided into which minerals of the good and the bad type that we utilize in our uh, body's physiology is based on solubility. And what I mean by solubility is the ability of that mineral to dissolve in water or the mineral to dissolve in fat, okay? Now, our body is based on water solubility for the most part. So almost every mineral that we use in the body that is supposed to be in the body and is supposed to be used in enzymes and hormones and other cofactors are water-soluble. 
which means that they're easy for us to regulate because our body is 90% water, mm -hmm. okay? Now, all of the things that we call heavy metals, mercury, lead, arsenic, aluminum, cadmium, tin, nickel, and I can just keep going down the list, are all fat-soluble minerals, okay? They love to be present in fatty structures. Now, we have no way to clean fat without using special proteins to help us regulate those minerals. And that's why we tend to call them heavy metals because they tend to be fairly large metals mm -hmm. or minerals. And in general, I want you to understand that acute toxicity uh, means complete overload of the body with the mineral. We are not talking or the heavy metal. We are not talking about that in these children. And that's usually when you go to visit your pediatrician and you're talking about heavy metals, that's what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, if the child drank a whole vial of uh, our thermometer full of mercury, we've got a big issue. Now, the biggest problem, excuse me, um, that we have with heavy metals is that we, they're in our environment and they're pretty much everywhere. Mm -hmm. Now, we can do our best to avoid them. But obviously, the good Lord intended for us to have those uh, exposures. And so he devised a very clever system physiologically for us to clear those. And that is to have these special proteins in our body that just happen to be very cysteine rich. So they use a specific uh, amino acid called cysteine in very high concentrations that have special chemical structures to grab these bad metals. Okay, so if I get a mercury, for instance, a mercury molecule into my body, mm -hmm. within uh, anywhere from a few minutes to a few hours, it will gradually migrate into my fat cells if I do nothing. Okay, the problem is I got to get it out of my body, and if it's in fat, I have no way to clean fat. So I have to have these special proteins, uh, metallothionines and glutathions, which we'll talk about in general for removing things that are hard for our body to get rid of to actually grab a hold of these abnormal minerals and make them water soluble again so I can then excrete them through my hair or my sweat or my pee or my, uh, my bowels, any way that I can get it out of the body. So in general, the only problem that we have with heavy metals is if they accumulate in too high of concentration in the body, they will start to interrupt because of their size, because of their structure, what minerals do in the body normally. So they kind of compete. They then. compete. Okay. That's a good way to put it. So the problem with these kids is that because cysteine metabolism, the way that we make that amino acid from methionine, which is the amino acid that our body uses, because of the way that we make that, it is very typically impeded. Mm -hmm in kids with spectrum disorders from what we believe are genetic abnormalities, right? okay? Then we have trouble making those proteins that remove heavy metals, and therefore we are less likely to keep them clear from our body, okay? okay? So the very simple concept is really pretty easy. We have no way to take this fat-soluble metal that gets into our body, cover it with something to make it soluble in water again so that we can then excrete it out of our body. So once it gets stuck in our fat, if we don't have that ability, it's there for life practically. Okay. Well, you brought up a good point. You said that metals are everywhere. Correct. And one of the first things I did when we saw those lab tests was that I went through the house and looked at everything possibly sure. that could be a source of metal in our house. And I did a lot of research, and everything I read just 
scared the heck out of me. Um, the flame retardant that was used in their pajamas and in their bed linens had antimony. Well, Jake was high in antimony. We ate chicken, and some chicken, especially non-organic, is high in arsenic. Um, lead, you know, uh, we, we've never lived in a house that was old with lead pipes or lead, um, what do you call it, lead pipes or um, lead paint on the walls, but then I found a lot of toys that had lead paint, sure. including the Leapster, which I wrote an article about that very toy because I found that whole website dedicated to toys that had high levels of lead and cadmium. Um, so we put water filtration systems on the faucets. We uh, have air purifiers. Everything we could think of to remove metals from the house and mm -hmm. any product in the house. That was a start. But you made a good point. Like I said, he goes to school. He's exposed to metals. He goes out in the community. He's exposed to metals. So after a while, I said, that's not enough. You know, it's not enough to take the metals and remove the source because he's always going to be exposed. And Correct. I can't protect him in a bubble for his entire life. Correct. So um, I know a lot of parents um, that we all still are very concerned about metals. We, we post a lot of um, emails about the metals. But one of the things, and this is leading me into the next question for you, is um, so our next step then we all naturally move toward is chelation. Mm -hmm. And we've talked to other parents. They've been, some parents have been chelating for years. Some have just started. Some parents are using oral chelators. Some parents are using um, um, suppositories. Some are using IV. And as a newcomer into this world of metals, it's pretty overwhelming. Yes, hence the confusion. <laughs> yes. So if you could explain uh, another open-ended question, how chelators work in the body in terms of the biochemistry, how okay. they grab the metals. Well, first of all, I, I want to back up just a little bit, if I can, for just a second, and talk about the fact that the body in a normal person chelates itself. Okay, we have these natural proteins that are designed for a single purpose, and that is to bind minerals and metals. Now, the metallothionines, um, and to a certain extent glutathione, which you know we can talk about at length, um, they are designed to not only grab bad heavy metals, but also to transport zinc and copper and other things around the body, and to make them available for lots of different processes. So. In general, we are still learning about the complicated method that the body uses to transport minerals around. It's not like they're just floating around. They actually are carried and delivered to different places by these appropriate proteins. Now, the biggest controversy in this whole realm is if we have a person who is not capable because of genetic foundations or because of interruptions or whatever method that we're talking about a deficiency in these normal chelating proteins, they have an inability to remove these bad metals from the body. And actually, they, you have to understand at the same time that they have an inability to regulate normal minerals in the body too. And so those are very important to put together. It's not just the bad that's in there, but the fact that you can't properly regulate the good make it just as... Um, worrisome. Now, so the natural foundation of thought was, well, gosh, if uh, the body can't do it, well, we sure do have chemicals that can do it. And the chemicals that can do it, we call chelating agents. And they're not, they're not things that we haven't known for a long time. In fact, I'm pretty sure EDTA 
uh, was discovered in the 1920s or 30s. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I was reading it was actually used on the military sure. uh, years ago, World War One, and right. even before that. Yeah, World War One. so we'd put it back in the mm-hmm. late teens, early 20s, if mm-hmm. that's the case. So it's not something that's not been known for a while. Now, those agents are a little bit troublesome because they do have some toxicity issues, so you have to be really cautious and know what you're doing. And and I'm not trying to embarrass the doctors who are experts in this uh, chelation uh, realm, but in general, we have to understand that when we're trying to chelate something out of the body, we have to use the appropriate chelator for the appropriate metal if we're going to do that. Okay. Now, I am not a doctor who gets caught up in the different methods of how you get a chelator into the body, okay? I don't really think it matters. I don't care if it goes oral or transdermal or perirectal or IV necessarily. What I do care about is the dosing that we get concentration-wise in the bloodstream at any one time, okay, or in the fat cells or in the body in general. I also care about the risk that we have to certainly controlling the good metal binding that we're going to have from those agents. So when you're chelating bad metals, you got to understand that these chelating agents have a preference for good minerals and bad minerals, mm-hmm. okay? And so they really don't have a lot of preference, and the reason we use different agents is dependent on which metal we're after, okay? Now, the way that we actually grab these is through a simple chemical bond, and that's the reason all these agents smell so bad like sulfur is because sulfur is what we use to to create this gap that these metals enter. And so you can get into a long discussion of controversy regarding chelation agents proper, okay? Um, I used to be really nervous about um, heavy metals and chelation. And the reason I was nervous is because I'm a healer. And I did not know where the cutoff was between a child that I needed to chelate to heal them and a child I didn't need to chelate right now to heal. Mm-hmm. Does that make the sense? Yeah. So that's a very controversial subject for me. And I can tell you something very clearly that I've had in my experience. Chelation does not heal anybody. Okay? What chelation's purpose is, is that if you have too much of heavy metal burden in your body that is interrupting enzymes and hormones that are necessary for healing, if you, do, if you have too much of those metals in there and you need to remove them to reestablish the normal environment of healing, then chelation will do that, okay? But you are never going to heal your child by chelation alone. Right. Okay, so it's really, really, and there may be doctors that disagree with it. That is totally my experience, okay? Because it makes common sense when you really think about it. You're not going to be able to pull toxins out of the body and heal at the same time. Right. just doesn't happen. And so in general, we have to understand when we're chelating and what I talk with my patients about is you haven't made any mistakes by chelating your child, mm-hmm. okay? But what we got to understand or get a good feel for with uh, in the treatment of your child is when are we done? Right. When are we going to take a break, okay? Well, and that's a good point because I've talked to parents that have had um, – have been doing chelation so long they've had their children have had um, kidney problems or they've had severe depletion of iron and zinc Mm -hmm. and some of you mentioned this some of the important minerals Um, because they were um, either doing it themselves or sometimes under the care of a doctor that didn't know when you stop you know Mm -hmm. or could say here's when we're going to make that decision 
and again, not to criticize anyone, but I agree that um, as I've met parents that have said they've been chelating their child for three years, four years, five years, my question is, when do you know when you're done? I, you right. know, are you going to be dumping metals forever? Correct. And likely, if the immune system's not healed, as you've told me, you will, right? You know, kids will constantly be dumping metals. Well, sure. I mean, you're always exposed, and you're no matter how perfect you think you are, you're going to be exposed. And the general fact is, is that we have to take a break at some point in time to understand whether we've reached the point, because we don't have perfectly precise methods of determining metal burden. Well, and um, I know, too, measuring liver enzymes has been really important because that way you know if you're, um, sorry, kidney and liver, but you know if you're affecting any other organs while you're doing this. And sure. you've always had the approach of go slow, be cautious. I think you've become more aggressive as I've uh, known you over the last couple of years. I think in the beginning when we first started seeing you, like you said, and you self-admitted earlier, is that uh, you were a little more cautious in this whole environment. Um, our challenge with Jake, and I know you don't have a chart in front of you right now, but um, our challenge, if you remember, he had seven metals. So it wasn't as easy as saying, oh, we can use EDTA or we can right. use DMPS because you have seven metals. So how do you know which metals? And I remember telling you that the ones that I was most concerned about based on my research on neurological damage was mercury and lead. Sure. Now, what you got to understand about that is acute toxicity a high concentration of mercury and lead does damage the brain. Okay, sorry, it, it just does. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there'll be too much controversy over that. The way that I think you get neurological abnormalities from chronic exposure and chronic buildup is actually a different way. It's not like this heavy metal goes into the brain and then destroys it, okay? What it tends to do is block the enzymes that and hormones and delivery processes of the nutritional elements that help the brain develop, mm -hmm. okay? Now, I, I wanna be a little bit uh, clear on the point that I used previously about I don't care how the chelation agent gets into the body. Well, there are people that we have to care about. Uh, you certainly don't wanna orally chelate typically a child who has got bad gut issues. Mm -hmm. You wanna kinda bypass the gut, and I think that's perfectly understandable. Right. You know, so transdermal methods or perirectal methods are certainly appropriate, and so is IV chelation. Mm -hmm. What I've just, what I have found in my experience is that there's no advantage in my hands to IV chelation over oral chelation over transdermal. Now, I don't think there's any doubt that an IV bolus will probably remove more metals than going through a slow process, but I don't think the speed or rapidity of pulling metals uh, relates to the outcome as much as everybody seems to think. Well, and I disagreed with you on that early on, so I'm just going to be real transparent with all the listeners and tell my uh, true confessions here. Sure. So we had been seeing you probably for about oh, a little under a year, and we're doing the oral chelation. We're mm -hmm. taking it kind of slowly, and I was doing some natural chelators on my own, the cilantro and garlic and Epsom salt baths. I had a lot of parents tell me that uh, they were having really good success with IV chelation in long periods of time. And um, so we left your practice. Mm -hmm. I, I hate to say we left because you were still our doctor. Sure. We just decided we were going to try another clinic sure. and do IV chelation with Jake. Uh, we went through two, two rounds and he was um, on the first one he was on an IV for 10 hours and the second one was for about eight. 
um, we had a pretty bad reaction. It was too much. And I didn't, I came out of that experience thinking, okay, I can carry on with this. But my gut told me it wasn't the right thing to do. And I think as parents, I don't care what you're doing. If your gut is calling to you that it's not the right thing to do, then probably isn't. And um, also, I, I started to really think about what she said with the IV, you know, whether it's um, IV, whether it's transdermal, whether it's oral. The most important thing is to know what you're doing and know the um, possible effects and dangers and all that. And the one thing that concerned me the most was if we were too aggressive on the chelation and we did IV and the metals redeposited in the brain or we had another adverse reaction, maybe we depleted minerals so significantly, um, could we get them back? And that scared me. So after just two um, visits at this one particular clinic, I came back to you with uh, my tail between my legs saying, I'm sorry, we tried something else and it really That's didn't okay. work. So um, I, I just want people to understand that I, uh, so they don't think that I've never tried some of the things. Of course I have. I've gone to many places. I've tried many different alternative practitioners as well, which we'll talk about on subsequent well, shows. Let's, let's talk about why that might have happened. And now the hardest thing to understand about chelation agents is there's not a perfect one. So what these agents are designed to do is to go into these fat cells mm -hmm. where these metals are deposited or into glial cells or wherever you're, you want them, wherever the metals go, anywhere there's a high fat concentration, they go in and they grab the metal, mm -hmm. okay? And they pull it back out into the bloodstream or it gets transported back out into the bloodstream and then some of those metals break free mm -hmm. and they're free floating again and they're free to go wherever they want, okay? And depending on the agent you're using and the dosage of the agent, effective dosage you're using, uh, the more aggressive you are, the more you free uh, metals, mm -hmm. okay, e even the bad ones. And so I don't think that a negative reaction to IV chelation is necessarily from redepositing of these metals. But what I do know is that free metals give us tremendous opportunity to block hormones and enzymes of all types including mm -hmm. growth hormone and thyroid and all types of steroids and I can just keep going down the page mm -hmm. and so the biggest problem with doing IV chelation uh, is the um, balancing act as a physician that you have to run between supplementing proper minerals in that patient and pulling metals at just the right rate to set that process up without um, overwhelming the child. Now I will tell you that from an infectious standpoint, anytime you're chelating, you're going to set opportunistic infections off pretty aggressively, whether it's virus, whether it's fungal, and anybody who's done it, they know that, that that's the case. Well, we did. We had a lot of yeast flares. Sure, yeast chelation. flares are huge, but anytime you have a yeast flare, you got to think that there's all every virus in the body's active too. Mm. Okay. So in general, you've got to understand that you've got to be on your anti-infectives or be at least cognizant of the problem. And so that's why for extended periods of time, you really don't run an advantage of chelation for long periods of time because then clearly you're not healing and you're giving or you're shifting the balance of power back to your infectious agents. Mm -hmm. Okay, because you certainly are going to hurt the immune system or at least, well, let me back up, let me not say hurt, you're going to, limit the function of the immune system with chelation. And that's the purpose of you doing it in the first place, right. is to try to get that reestablished. Now, 
in the last year and a half, my spiel for this whole um, metal controversy has changed. Okay. And if you've been around this world long enough, you'll remember Dr. Walsh and the Pfeiffer Institute and his whole concept on metalloproteins and metallothionines and how we could promote those. And through some happenstance of you know our research and other uh, experience in this area, uh, um, that whole concept is really gaining a lot more favor with me. And I think probably with you now that mm-hmm. we've experienced what happened in Jake. And so Dr. Walsh was really one of the guys who established a possible link between metallothionines, the proteins that help us grab metals naturally, and uh, autism. And so by, um, by looking at the biochemical processes and metallothionines' uh, relationship to this methylation defect that uh, we now understand most of these children do have, uh, by addressing that properly, we've been able to successfully, and quite a number of children, uh, reestablish their natural chelation processes. Okay? And that has made me really happy. Because mm-hmm. if there's anything that makes, uh, you know, mainstream medicine nervous is the term chelation. Oh, you know, yeah. Try that with your normal uh, pediatrician and see what what you get when you do that uh, so. she was horrified actually absolutely <laughs> <laughs> and wanted to know where we were going and what doctor we were using so of course i gave no names no I'm kidding <laughs> exactly well i mean that's not funny truthfully yeah I mean. yeah well and they've you know from her perspective she she did say that um she's seen kids that have ended up in the emergency room because they haven't been under the care of a doctor or they haven't been under a good protocol and she said she admitted she said you know i know in medical school they teach you about chelation for lead poisoning for like you said acute toxicity and sure. it's the only fda cleared um use of chelation children but she said uh there is no protocol out there for the mercuries and the uh, arsenic and the antimony she said and that's the whole issue is that everybody's doing different things and nobody really understands how these metals have an effect on the body and uh, what I really like about her she's a doctor of osteopath and she's a very uh, takes a very um, I call it holistic approach to uh, pediatrics and she's uh, very open to staggering vaccines in fact actually promotes that as well but um, I yeah you made a great point I think anytime you mention that chelation word um, well Autism and chelation, the same sentence, is even worse. Well, you know, I tell you, in the state of Texas, which I'm sure they've seen in other states, I mean, it's really uh, thrown up a huge red flag for our medical board and, you know, for many of the political um, uh, assault, is a good word, I guess, uh, on the doctors who take care of this community. And so this whole concept of us being able to manipulate the body's natural or recover the body through natural processes, find out what was missing in the, in the methylation pathway, uh, replace it adequately, uh, reestablish natural production, and uh, chelate the, the body itself has made our job a lot easier. So whereas I would used to, on an initial visit, uh, quantify the metal immediately, uh, I found myself uh, just naturally slowing down a little bit and saying, let me see what I can do with the body itself before I go and I check that. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, that also comes from where you're from. I mean, if you come into Texas and you're from a major oil producing or a major 
oil refining region, I've got a lot more sensitivity than if you're from a, a reasonably pristine area. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it really has to do, in my experience, with groundwater and in Texas with groundwater uh, and also with uh, petroleum products in Texas. Now we do see lots of in certain areas of Texas, we have these Superfund sites and all kinds of toxicities, just like everybody. But in, in general, we're very excited about this proposition. But uh, and in no way am I belittling chelation, because I do think that in there, there is still going to be a significant amount of these children, and adults too, uh, in these families who require uh, some form of assistance in clearing their, their metal and toxic load. And uh, I just think that we, in general, in the political atmosphere that we're seeing now in Texas, we might be uh, forced into um, uh, a little bit different uh, philosophy, which I think will ultimately win because the things that we're missing in the methylation cycle also help us heal a lot better. Well, absolutely. Um, No, those are all great points. um yeah, I was just going to say um, one thing I missed in, in talking about uh, the diagnosis of Jake's metals is even before we got the lab testing back, and I look back on photos to jog my memory of when Jake was, I call him metal toxic, he had this terrible complexion. He looked just pasty. He had no color in his face. He had dark circles under his eyes. Uh, he would have night sweats every night. And I asked you about that, and you said that's the body's natural way of clearing, you know, uh, toxins, you know, they, these kids sweat, and he was sweaty every night. Uh, and then I noticed his hair and um, you know his urine had a metallic odor. I uh, can't really say what metal; it just smelled like almost like tin. And um, you know, so I knew that there was something there. It was just kind of a shock when I saw it in paper. But um, as you've been able to heal Jake's immune system, and and we've seen recovery in him, all those symptoms have gone away. Um, you know, he doesn't have cracked skin anymore. He doesn't have the rash across his chest or arms. He looks um, tan and, you know, che- rosy cheeks with no dark circles under his eyes. He sleeps well. Um, still has some night waking with, you know, that's another issue on the dopamine. We'll talk about another show. But um, for the most part, I haven't noticed any metallic smell. Uh, where I'm going with this, though, is that um, we had a rather amazing experience. Um, so back on to when we came, uh, taking our listeners back to when we came back to you after our experience at that one clinic. We kept on with your protocol and um, kept uh, kept confidence that, that, that you were going to recover Jake. We were going to do this as, as fast as we could, but also be careful. Um, we did the anti-infectives. I won't list our whole protocol right now, but we did a lot of the um, things that you've suggested where you're, you're handling the pathogens at the same time as the metals. And um, so then something miraculous happened last Easter, a uh, week before Easter. Uh, we came in for a regular appointment with you, a regular three-month appointment, and you said, let's do another urine toxicology screen. We haven't done one since last fall. And we got the results back. And when I, your nurse called me with the results, I asked her if they had maybe mixed up the patients. Maybe we should recheck them because they were all negative. Mm-hmm. I said, this can't be. This is a kid that had seven medals that were moderate to highly toxic, you know, based on the reference ranges, and here he's got no metals. So I immediately called you and said, what's going on? <laughs> and um, I know um, you have a really great reason for this, but um, I wanted our listeners to hear about how 
you know, going further down this path about how the body, you, you help the body to do what it's supposed to do, which is to clear the metals naturally. Sure. Well, you know, obviously, no matter how good we think we are medicinally, uh, we pale in comparison to the body's natural processes. For whatever your reason, uh, you believe that those all developed, whether it was trial and error, whether it was uh, the hand of God or wherever you want, I think that uh, we have to realize, and the, the more experienced doctor you become, the more you realize that, um, gosh, there's nothing better than what the body does itself. And so it was always um, our hope um, that if we could find this um, unique um absence of nutritional elements or converted nutritional elements or uh, amino acids or some type of process that uh, was contributing to the plethora of symptoms and developmental problems in these children that if we could just replace them then the body would reestablish its own natural development it's kind of ultimate homeopathy mm -hmm. to be honest with you and so um, in the methylation process, I don't think that we've worked that out entirely. In fact, I can guarantee you we have not. Uh, certainly, um, you can look at the genetics related to each of these processes, but you cannot treat genetics. I want to be very clear on that. The biggest problem with genetics is you have no idea when you check those genes whether the gene is on or off. Mm -hmm. All you know is what's there. Okay. So you cannot, you can do all the genetic testing you want, and I'll tell this to every patient who comes in with their thousands and thousands of dollars worth of genetic testing, and please don't take any offense to this, any of my colleagues in the area, because I think the foundation of understanding the genetics is essential to these statements. But you cannot treat genetics, you have to treat biomarkers. Mm -hmm. You have to treat the marker that tells us how effectively that, or how uh, penetrant that gene really is. Yeah, you know, I can think of an, a specific example uh, for Jake. I know he had an absent gene for GSTM1, which I found was the gene that controls uh, glutathione production. Correct. And uh, you you can't treat the GSTM1 gene that's not there. I mean, you can't reinsert it. We don't have that technology readily no. accessible. <laughs> but you can treat the way um, that you can help that glutathione production. You can help with supplementing with glutathione. And uh, that's exactly what we did, you know, because that's a gene that controls a protein, like many genes, you know, or some genes control multiple proteins, and some are turned on and off, like you said. You know, there, there's so much we don't understand about gene expression and how that controls proteins. Well, you don't want to talk about, Jake doesn't have an absent glutathione S transferase gene. What he has is a variant. Yeah. Okay, so don't, let's not talk about it's either there or it's not because it's not absence or there. He's just got a different variant. Yeah, good point. It may not good be point. as effective as the, the the normal variant. Right. Now, the problem with that is is that that's where it becomes so difficult because mm -hmm. I don't care what protein you make. It still has to have minerals and it still has to have vitamins and it still has to have other cofactors to make it work. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't identify the cofactors and you don't know how prevalent the gene uh, efficiency is, then you really are still left guessing. And so you wind up being on 80 supplements and nothing's happening and you don't know what you're doing. Well, and the problem, we've been there. So <laughs> I'm just going to say, right. we, we've been on the 80 supplements or 100 maybe. I know at one time we had a pretty fancy spreadsheet that I brought into you showing all the supplements. Well, and I, and I <laughs> certainly don't want to criticize anybody who's trying to, to help these children. And believe it, these are my colleagues and in no way am I trying to 
um, belittle their work. But I'm sorry, in a process that is this prevalent, okay, there is no doubt in my mind from a general experience in medicine, and this is just common sense, that the simplicity of this abnormality, once we define it, will be based on one or two abnormalities, not a whole plethora of abnormalities. Mm -hmm. Okay? And it will be found, in my opinion, in a cofactor. Something that affects so many different things. Mm -hmm. So it'll be like the methylation process of vitamins. Okay. Of specific vitamins. It'll be in specific processes that just have a broad spectrum of effects. Okay. Well, and that's a great point because at one time, I'll use the methylation pathway as an example, though I'm referring to the Jill James chart, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, we were supplementing with about everything you can imagine in that um, diagram. We were giving him cysteine, or NAC, I'm sorry, um, B12, B6, help me, taurine, or a bunch of them in there, right? Um, sure. All the aminos, et cetera. We were blindly Sammy. Yeah, yeah we were sammy all those uh they call methyl donors we were just throwing all those at him and we were on probably 25 different supplements just for that uh repair in that pathway this is outside of all the detox and all the other anti-infectives and everything else so just in that pathway what we noticed was when we had a day where he really focused and was great in school teacher said wow what'd you do different I said, I have no idea. <laughs> or a day that he regressed, well, what did you do different? I have no idea. That's the problem when you're on, if you count you know, the supplements and then the, all the interventions, when you're on that many things, you have no way of possibly tracking Correct. what works and what doesn't work. And uh, when we, I think now we're down to less than eight different things we have them on now, which has made a world of difference. Because if he misses a day, of neurotransmitter support, wow, I see a difference. Right, and well, hence the the you know the methylation methionine pathway is is great to understand because if you're missing everything in the pathway, there's got to be some commonality. If you miss this particular point, then nothing below it right. in this pathway is going to be proper. Right. And actually, you know, Jill James was one of the first ones to kind of show us a little with a little intrigue where we where she thought the pathway was maybe interrupted. Mm -hmm. Now the problem is there's a lot of difficult biochemistry you got to work through in that. Right. And okay. and there's different approaches in the autism world and how you treat that pathway defect or those right. defects. Well, I'm sure and I will tell you that you know, we like to think we've got the best way and I'm sure there's other doctors that feel the same way. We're all after the same process and we are all going to learn from each other. Mm -hmm. But in general, what we have to understand is that there is something that's going to affect all of those that's missing. And it's not that, I mean, path, abnormalities don't work that way. We don't have 80 things missing in an abnormality. It's usually one thing missing right. or two things missing that are actually related. Mm -hmm. Okay? So put those back in, and then all of a sudden the body does it itself because I'm sorry. I don't care how good you are. You are not even close as a doctor, not even close, not even in the same ballpark with the effectiveness of the body's physiology. Mm -hmm. You cannot even come close. Well, and uh, from, a more, uh, from a more real perspective that I think a lot of parents can relate to is uh, that was just cost prohibitive for us. I mean, we were, up, we were one of those families spending 1000 a month on supplements, mm -hmm. and uh, we couldn't carry on like that. 
Sure. Uh, and have other therapies that we could afford, like um, ABA therapy or hippotherapy or whatever else we wanted to do or tutoring, you know, because that depleted everything, you know. So there came a point where I just said, okay, mercy, I need simplicity in our lives. And now we have it. Um, and I also have a son who's recovering, so I right. couldn't ask for more. Um, so with that, um, I, I think you answered my next question. That was, <laughs> well, one of the areas that uh, it is really difficult for parents to manage is the supplementation, the anti-infectives, you know, how do you manage the yeast and the pathogens, and we talked about that on our last program, and the chelation supplements all at one time. Um, I know in the early days when we were doing chelation, we alternated chelation and then minerals, which is what makes sense because you, re you replenish the minerals that you've lost. But... Um, Without having to actually explain a protocol here, I, um, I, I've listed some categories of supplements we've been on before, but what's the best way for us as parents to manage all the interventions during the metal toxicity period? So the time before the metals start clearing. Um, and what would be the urgency? I mean, is it, like I think you touched on this, do we heal the gut first? Or do we do anti-inflammatories? Do we do uh, trying to increase the uh, glutathione and then uh, help the body to naturally start uh, clearing the metals? Do we do detox? I mean, there's so many different components to this, and it gets really confusing. And um, I look back, and thank God we were under your protocol and had a clear-cut roadmap. But um, for parents that don't come to your clinic or haven't yet, can you kind of help just make this a little more clear as to when you address metals, how often, when you take a break, in a general sense? Yeah. Um, first of all, I don't like to break everything down into the path, uh, into the categories that you've used. Okay. And I don't mean to be offensive, but this is exactly the way most parents break them down. Yeah. And, we're like pro to, and just so you know, we're, I think we're programmed this way because of all that sure we read. <laughs> sure you are. But, and that becomes so confusing that you mm -hmm. don't know what to do. Right. Okay. So I like to break it down into something that's very simple. Do I have a killing agent? Do I have a healing agent? And then do I have a symptom altering agent? Mm -hmm. Okay, and it's really just those three things. So when a child first comes to see me, what we have to understand is where they are in this process. You've gotta help with the symptom agent. You just gotta help that parent gain some confidence in your abilities as a physician to help the child uh, symptomatically because that's what's life altering at that point in time. Okay. Oh my gosh, my child is not developing. Uh, they're not talking or they're educationally challenged or, you know, whatever stage they come in. So the way that we approach that is to make sure we set up clear cut, um, defining processes to address each of those individually. Now, most of my patients come from anywhere from coast to coast and some of them are locally and it's a lot easier if you're local. Mm -hmm. Because you can layer it and say, okay, well, let's have a visit a couple of months from now, and we'll talk about something else. But right. usually when you pick up and you come in from California, <laughs> you know, or New York or Georgia or... Or South America. Uh, or South yeah. America yeah. or wherever, Europe. exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't believe people have to come that far for a doctor. But um, you have to then try to ascertain all this stuff and put it into a process that's understandable. Mm -hmm. So... The first thing that I like to do is to symptomatically make the parent understand that there's genetics behind most of this. And those genetics are divided into uh, basically problems that affect dopamine and problems that affect the immune system. Mm -hmm. So our target is to be to control infection, 
uh, from, a, from a healing perspective and to fix the immune system in general terms. And then there's symptomatic controls. Now symptomatic controls, when you look at the TMGs, uh, the uh, taurines, uh, the agents that manipulate dopamine or essentially methylate dopamine mm -hmm. um, can significantly alter or improve the e ease at which the, um, the child breaks down dopamine and can change some of the symptomatic performance of the child, mm -hmm. okay? So we usually will start with some type of supplement that involves those methyl donors. We also typically will start with an anti-inflammatory of some type, okay, because the general premise of the immune system is that the T cells, the killer cells of the immune system are not working very well, so we've got this inflammatory allergic uh, uh, side of the immune system just going nuts and trying its best to do a job for two parts of the immune system. Mm -hmm. So we also tend to back off of uh, uh, dietary stimulants. Um, you know, certain things that we know will be involved. Typically, you're looking at the GFCF issue if you're not going to define it. And, right. And also look at uh, basically controlling them maybe with a mild steroid or some other antioxidant, which most parents typically by the time they get to me are already on some of that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you can use all types of omega-3 fatty acids. Even some people discuss probiotics, etc. Now, the... The gut is a big issue because there is not a greater source of inflammation in the body than an inflamed bowel. And I don't think there's any of us that have never had diarrhea or something that just gets our bowel so churned up that it's just, you know, just rules your life, mm -hmm. okay? So just imagine if you felt that way every day. And so we have to be able to address bowel issues if they are that aggressive, sometimes with an anti-inflammatory uh, through the bowel itself. Mm -hmm. And I think most of the guys who handle the GI areas with expertise um, are pretty attuned to that type of stuff. So controlling inflammation and trying to help dopamine processing is a good first step when you first see the person to try to get some sanity back to the family. Okay. Yeah, and that's always a good thing because okay. um, you're a much better parent when you have sleep. Absolutely. <laughs> Now, with that being said, too, from a symptomatic standpoint, we almost always have to add some GABA or melatonin, and sometimes mm. we have to be a little more creative uh, to get some sleep into that child because the dopamine processing abnormality that these children possess creates sleep abnormalities uh, more often than not. Yeah, and um, of all the things we've, we've healed in Jake and recovered, the sleep abnormalities are still lingering. Sure. They're not as frequent, but uh, we still have that. So I'm optimistic that we'll be able to get that um, as kind of the, the back half of this journey. But um, he still, right. you know, he, he goes to sleep just fine. It's waking up in the middle of the night at least once. But it's better than waking up every hour like he right. did when he was three. Exactly. And when, so we also want to make sure that we, start with the symptomatic controls because when we go through the killing phase which is the initial phase of most any of these therapeutics we're going to stir things up mm -hmm. so if we don't have some inflammatory control while we're going to kill extra we really get ourselves into you know um, a deep hole without a rope and so we've got to make sure that we um, set that process up now we also at the same time have to address the the problem what really brought us here and that's the immune dysfunction and what state is that at so we're pretty good now where we used to have to break it down into segments we're pretty good now at doing that all at the same time 
but from a supplemental standpoint, uh, you really, I would encourage you from a, a supplemental standpoint to stick with what I call genetic specific supplementation. Meaning that all supplements are not for all children and the severity of the biomarkers makes a huge difference in what you have to use and what you don't have to use. And I'm going to offend every parent on the chat board who are saying, my child did great from this and my child did great from that. I would tell you that genetics will define what the child will be worth. Now, from a general principle, me, me being Anglo male versus my buddy who's an African male, we don't take the same supplements because we really don't come from the same genetic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. okay, that's a broad spectrum. But when we're dealing with these unique genetics of these children, even a child who has the genetics versus a child who doesn't um, and could be in the same family uh, would clearly take different supplementation. Well, and what I don't understand, you know, we're applying this whole emerging field of pharmacogenomics to all drugs now. Correct. Because pharma companies have a lot of liability, understandably, and one in three Americans approximately have adverse drug reactions. Correct. But we're not applying it to supplements and... We won't talk about vaccines till the next show, but we don't apply it to vaccines either. You know, but you're so right. Our genetics, our makeup, determines how we metabolize just about everything that goes in our body, even the food we eat. <laughs> well, you know, if you have European descent patterns or Eastern European descent patterns, and that's not to um, say that this doesn't affect every population in the world, but certainly if you have those descent patterns, the genetics may be as penetrant as 30% of the population. Mm -hmm. So in general, that, that one in three really number really sticks out because if you don't think pharmaceuticals don't get processed by the same processes that we're talking about here, uh, it's something we're going to be really surprised at how uh, widespread these issues are. And I will tell you, I encourage my adult patients who have all types of neuro immune or neurosensory disorders to next time they see a child with autism to go up and hug them because what the way I can treat those adult patients and even the parents of these children and grandparents of these children I would not be able to do today without the knowledge that these children have taught us so and that's really where we're going to get into a big hurdle you know the problem with the pediatricians with the family practice the internists is those guys stay very focused on specific age groups. And the only way that the information that I'm telling you today, the only way it could be ascertained is if we had a knowledge of the adult literature plus the pediatric literature combined. Mm -hmm. Okay, Because we've stolen from everybody mm -hmm. to come up with this protocol, and I'll say it very blatantly. Now, it's not stealing when it's public knowledge, but it certainly has involved us ensuring that we take every advantage we can to help heal these children from every place we can get it. So we have parts of our protocol that came from multiple sclerosis, and we have parts that came from dizziness, and we have parts that came from, you know, from Alzheimer's and dementias. Mm -hmm. We have parts that come from autism of all types. We have types that come from migraine literature. I can just keep going down the list because they're all nervous system-based. Well, and before we started recording today, we were talking about um, how in the big picture, it's not just about autism. I mean, one in three children have a neuroimmune disorder. Correct. Allergies, asthma autism, ADD, ADHD. So it's this these neuroimmune disorders are everyone's problem Correct. and they just seem to be increasing. I mean, remember growing up, you do probably as well, um, peanut allergies were never heard of and now you have peanut-free campuses. I mean, peanut-free airplanes because, and that's just one example, but I mean, our genetics are changing 
as our society gets bigger and we just uh, we're not keeping up necessarily with the technology on how we react well, to these. Our genetics might be changing but we're challenging ourselves a whole lot. More. Oh absolutely. Go to bodyburden.org and see the 600,000 chemicals they found in cord blood <laughs> and you know you, you really are amazed at what we're exposing oh, our absolutely. bodies to. And then hence you can understand what a beautiful machine our body really is. Oh it's amazing that we're not all dead. It's uh, sure really, it really uh, from what we encounter every day. Right but I can tell you that you know I when you get into this field as a physician and um, or you're invited in from another area of medicine like I was, um, the overwhelming aspects of the knowledge base is, is truly that overwhelming. And so I can only imagine what all my parents go through trying to understand this. But then when you start looking at it and you go outward and take in this huge knowledge base and then you start putting uh, associations together then all of a sudden it narrows it back and makes it not as overwhelming and hopefully that's something we can give you through the understanding through these, this radio show and other, and other uh, uh, knowledge transfers so well I'm really excited that uh, this is now our fourth episode that we've completed and um, we'll, we'll be ready for number five next month um, which we'll be talking about um, highly controversial topic should I keep it under wraps or should I just announce I think you can go for it I mean you've taken me everywhere so far <laughs> okay so our next uh, episode we'll be talking about vaccines and uh, and neuroimmune disorders did I just say those two words in the same sentence I guess I did um, I want to remind our listeners that they can send us their questions via email to questions at drkendallstewart.com and we'll answer those during our October broadcast um, I do want to end today with a happy story since we have a few more minutes and uh, I'll give everyone an update on my son Jake because we've had a pretty tremendous summer. Uh, we started the summer like we've started the last several summers and that is that Jake's been terrified of water, just absolutely terrified. Uh, we went to the beach and I uh, mentioned this in the last show, he had just started this behavior but he decided he wasn't afraid of water this summer, got over the fear and taught himself to swim. Uh, no intervention. He went out up to his shoulders, started dog paddling, started kicking, and uh, two weeks ago he swam halfway across the deep end in the swimming pool, which is unbelievable to me. Um, that, and he started his first day of school Monday, uh, went right in, put his backpack in his locker, turned around, looked at the teacher like, okay, I'm ready. And you compare this to the last several years of going to school, it was a huge battle not just getting in the school, it was even before that, getting him out of bed, getting him dressed, getting him to put his shoes on, getting him to wear any color besides the blue shirt. I mean, it was, he, this kid had so many sensory issues, as you remember. Um, we're really on just this tremendous upswing of cognitive gains with him right now. Uh, we had our appointment with you with him, was it last week? And uh, he wrote his name for you, and he wrote it in probably, what, an 18 font with a uh, pretty nice legible straight print straight on a line <laughs> no line but he wrote it straight across um, and then he wrote cat after it C-A-T and looked you straight in the eye and uh, I think you asked him Jake I don't remember what you asked him I think you said Jake do you want to go swimming he says no I want to go eat <laughs> <laughs> so um, we are just completely overwhelmed and blessed and um, 
it's been it's been a long road. I mean, he'll be nine years old in November, sure. and we started this when he was about just before his sixth birthday. So uh, we didn't catch it as early as some of these parents. I and when parents tell me they're starting to see you and they have an 18 month old, I'm I'm just so happy for them because I can only imagine where we'd be today if we started Jake earlier right. in your protocol, but we didn't. Uh, that said, I'm just very fortunate and blessed, and um, my husband and I are just completely thrilled with his progress. So I just wanted to leave on that note and leave on a happy note. Those stories always make me happy. Okay. So thank you, Dr. Stewart. You're very welcome. Goodbye, everyone. See you later.